standard issue for all women. Hello there, Jen here. So this week's Sunday Chops is pretty freaking special. But before I start on that, let me tell you about our other Sunday Chops because we have two this week. As well as this one, you'll be able to hear Mick and I having a little chinwag with the fantastic Jean Sarpong at the Edinburgh Literary Festival, which um, was a couple of weeks ago. We were talking to her about her book Diversify and the constant that is Tony from Hollyoaks and, and all sorts of stuff. And she was fantastic and charming and wonderful. And we're also absolutely chuffed to bits to have announced this week that she's going to be joining us for one of our London shows on October the 28th. So do have a little look at Sarah website we've also just announced a bunch of other fantastic guests including Chidera Egaru, aka the Slumflower, and Angela Barnes who join Imriel Morgan on the panel for a live recording of the Standard Issue podcast at the London Podcast Festival on the 15th of September which is also my birthday FYI so buy a ticket and um, that'll be a lovely present thanks very much anyway back to the matter at hand which is this particular Sunday chop Hannah and I were delighted to catch up with Gina Miller a couple of weeks ago that's right that Gina Miller as she will go on to tell you we chatted to Gina about oh my goodness she was so interesting and also like girl crush alert basically Gina talked to us obviously about Brexit about the very high profile court case that she's been involved with in conjunction with that about what it's like to be a woman in the public eye these days about how to handle microaggressions about so much stuff and she's fantastic do you know what I'm gonna shut up just listen to it just have a listen it's fantastic and we'll be back again on Wednesday with more pod zening for your ears hope you enjoy it Hello, we're joined by businesswoman, philanthropist, activist and now author of a new book, Rise, Life Lessons in Speaking Out, Standing Tall and Leading the Way, Gina Miller. Thanks very much for joining us. Pleasure. So Gina, just from the introduction, we know you've been pretty busy. <laughs> You're busy with all sorts of other stuff, Brexity and, and non-Brexity. So can you just tell us a bit about what's been going on? <laughs> How did I find time to find, write a book? <laughs> what? <laughs> Yeah, um, it's um, they say always, you know, ask a busy person to do something and it'll get done. I think I've um, always been someone who's fairly manic, <laughs> juggling lots of things. I find it really difficult to be bored or to just sit and not do anything. There's this burning desire that's always been in me in wanting to address whatever I see in society, whatever conversations. Some people call me a nosy parker. I might well be. I just find it difficult to be physically and mentally still. And when I started getting an awful lot of messages, positive messages and supportive messages, but from people who felt I could read between the lines, there was a sense of loss or wanting to reach out for some sort of hope and inspiration because there was a fragility I was getting from not just young people because there's this, I think, uh, myth that it's only young people who are feeling fragile. And I thought, there's so much focus on success or being a certain way, these sort of manufactured lives, that would be really interesting and I thought helpful, even if it was just to a handful of people, to talk about my life and what's and all, the failures, the things that, that have shaped me and reach out in a way that could possibly help people. So that was the whole premise of the book. So the book is sort of part memoir, but it's also kind of self-help and advice to women in sort of moving, you know, getting yes. ahead in business and, mm. and just in society and stuff. Was that always the intention with the book? Yes, very much so. But I didn't want to preach or tell people things. I thought through 
the lens of my life. I could speak to women on a different level rather than some of the books that I've reviewed over the last few years that are maybe in that genre of trying to help women uh, progress and, and be more comfortable with who they are and achieve more have been at a level where it seems unattainable. It's almost too impossible to get there and patents it as though it's fairly easy and uh, you know if you can't do it, then you must be the failure. And I didn't want to have that feeling. I, I wanted this, as I said, to be a book with a real sense of honesty and that it's okay to be yourself and it's okay to fail, and it's okay not to be good at everything. So just to take away some of those pressures that are on women to be perfect at everything, it's impossible. So one of the things you talk about in the book is why it's hard for women to find their voice. And you actually say in the book that you think one of the reasons for that is that sexism is more nuanced than it used to be. How do you think it's more nuanced now? When I started, especially in business, you, it was much more front and centre and people would say things. You know, they talk about, for example, in the city, talk about going down to a strip club or taking a client out or, you know, mentioning. I remember, uh, you know, you go into reception and they'd make jokes about the size of a woman's cups, not meaning the coffee cups and all those sorts of things. And now it isn't like that. So it might be a comment about, um, well, if you're presenting maybe you should wear a dress or that uh, if you're in a conversation in a room, you'll be told, well, why don't you sit there and you'll be put in your place rather than being in the center. It'd be better for our clients if you sat at that side of the table. And and there's those sort of things which are not blatant, but definitely there and more nuanced. And it's nuanced in the cultures that are developing in organizations. And that's what worries me because it's become culturally acceptable to behave in that way without people calling it out more like microaggressions. It, it is It is that it, it's very subtle. Mm. And uh, what it happens is that you can't quite, as a recipient, you're never quite sure if it is something you should be offended about or not. And uh, that sowing of doubt in your mind means that then they actually can get away with it. Mm. Yeah, I think with those situations, it's seen as like someone who moans about everything. Oh, yes. She moans about where she sat, she moaned about this, mm. rather than they see it as a, a cumulative things of, well, the, the whole picture is I am being treated differently to men. In the yeah, world. because it, it's very easy to have, oh, well, you know, painters say, oh, she's such a me or whatever it is. You know, she complains about everything. But actually, and I say one of the points I want to make to women is it's actually that's exactly what you should be doing. Call out the small stuff before it gets so big, because what happens if it comes so unsurmountable when you think you can't be heard and you can't stand up that you tend to leave. And one of the statistics that is definitely bearing this out is the fact that you have really bright young women going into um, huge diverse sectors of business and arts and culture, but they're leaving at middle management. They're leaving at that level where they don't feel they can put up with it anymore. And that's such a huge loss of talent and, uh, you know, women who have so much to contribute. And so I say, you know, you're looking after women at the entry level and at the top level, but what about in the middle? That's when you need to have the support. The main reason why you've sort of come to prominence in the public <laughs> eye recently is of course the high court case i was going to say yes. battle but it was maybe. more like a battle than a okay. case. <laughs> can you tell us a bit about what you did and what your part was in that case and and why did it mean so much to you to me it was very straightforward which is we have a parliamentary sovereignty which everyone's talking about so part we elect mps who go to parliament and they decide supposedly, what's best for all of us. And there's a constitution behind that. So there's rules and regulations that they have to follow. 
And one of the basic rules is that when it comes to people's rights that we enjoy every day, it's only Parliament who can do that. We don't have rules that say that a Prime Minister and a small group of MPs called the Executive can decide our futures. They can in other countries, they can't in the UK. So you can't bypass Parliament. A Prime Minister can't put him or herself above the law. And yet, once we had the vote on referendum and people had decided that we wanted to leave, the Prime Minister was going to do it on her own. And just think about that. She was going to decide what our futures would look like, what our rights would look like, and bypass Parliament. And that would have taken away or set us back 200 years in our Constitution. So this was about ensuring that Parliament were regarded in a legal manner to be front and centre in the decisions of the future. Because if that hadn't happened, we don't have a written constitution, which is quite ironic. We're the only member state in the EU who don't have a written constitution, and yet we're the ones leaving. So there are so many ironies about Brexit. That is one of them. And because we don't have a written constitution, you have something called precedent, which is if it's something that's allowed to happen once, be it legally or in uh, uh, politics, it then becomes almost like the law, the norm. And if Mrs May had set the precedent that a prime minister and a handful of ministers could lock away in a room and decide our lives, then any prime minister in future would have been able to do that. It's quite extraordinary how that would have changed the balance of power and accountability. And that's what I was standing up for. And I couldn't understand why everybody wasn't talking about this. It seemed so obvious to me. And the most obvious person to me that should have been doing it is the opposition. And I could not understand why they were not calling out the government and holding their feet to the fire. And I kept waiting and waiting and nothing was happening. And I thought, well, if nobody's going to do it, It'll just have to be me. <laughs> well, well, glad someone did. somebody had to do it. Yeah. <laughs> well done. You said in the book that you wanted to examine why the state of public discourse has become so toxic. Why do you think that is, and how has Brexit given rise to this situation? It's a really difficult question, and I think you can write whole separate books on this, not just one book. But some things to bear in mind is that Brexit is not the reason. It's almost a sort of final straw, and it hasn't just happened overnight. This has been happening for years and years, probably decades now. And I think part of it is because, in a way, we even got on with our lives. We forgot that we're supposed to keep an eye on the politicians, not just politicians, but people in positions of power. We've sort of let them get on with things, and we've got on with our lives. And we've been a little bit lazy in, in exercising our questioning and civic duty. And because of that... They thought, well, we've got away with this. Well, we'll get away with a bit more. We'll get away with a bit more. And suddenly, it's created a society where, what I call sinkhole society, where people have disappeared because they have no voice anymore. And they felt ignored, rightly. Things are not working for them. Their lives are not working. Opportunities are not working. And when you can't see your life working for you, you will call out. And that's partly what Brexit was about, in my view, and the data bears it out, is on a domestic front. Our policies were not serving our country. Whilst people were getting very wealthy, you know, economics, capitalism is working for a certain level, it was not working for a large, growing number of societies. And added to that, this idea that we've had politics for years where the politicians, instead of taking responsibility for their lack of policymaking, good policymaking and responsibility, have just blamed the EU. They've just said, oh, it's not our fault. It's the EU's fault. Then people, you gave people a target to aim for. 
And then you go and ask people, so do you want to stay or remain or blame those other people over there? It was just, you couldn't have written a better play of how to divide society than Brexit because it played on all those fears and divisions that were already under the surface. And I think it just, it was like a sore. It just opened up a sore in society. And what's oozing out now is the poison that's been allowed to build for years and years. And in a way, there is a positive to Brexit, which people always find odd that I say, which is we're going to have a, if you like, a, a cleaning out of that poison. We'll have, you know, people will suddenly look at the wounds. They'll look at the divisions and we have to find a way of healing it. And that's the positive that we now have to concentrate on, all of us. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I believe the same thing about Trump. I think Trump is simultaneously, certainly for the media, for the American media, the best and the worst thing that's ever happened yes. for them because they will emerge stronger at a time when the media was really flailing around, really, sort of, in the Western world. Suddenly, people want to say no to Trump, and the way you say no to Trump is to say yes to the Washington Post, is to yes. give them money, yes. is to start subscribing, and... So it may have saved them. But we've got more people talking about politics than yeah. ever before. We've got young people who are so energized and talking and looking at about what this means. Mm. So I think there are positives that we can take away from this. But it's where we go next that is important. It's, it's interesting when you, when you say about the, the sort of latent poison that was sort of bubbling under the surface. Because I think almost anyone who stood up and said or did what you did <laughs> would have come in for a lot of abuse from a certain element of brexiteering not all people who know brexit on that but the fact that you were a woman yes at, at, and the fact that you are not a white woman yes. it became it allowed both of those the misogyny and the racism to come literally be thrown at you as well it was suddenly the people had loads of it but i did have a, a very senior journalist saying to me i can't believe Jenny, you're doing this because you're going to give us everything to attack you with the the phrase that was used is you're you know you you're like the barbie doll we can just stick pins in which i found an extraordinary thing for a senior journalist to say basically he was saying you've made it easy for us and i i know that i know that because i've been a campaigner for nearly 20 years this I, again you know brexit didn't happen overnight and me as a campaigner did not happen overnight either. I've been here for 20 years, so I'm aware of how toxic it is. And I am aware of the fact that it's easy to attack me personally. But I've always taken the view, or I've learned to take the view from a very early on in my campaigning, that if they're attacking me and not what I'm saying, then I know I'm right. And so that's the way I've dealt with it. I've learned to deal with it. So I wanted to ask you a little bit about the criticism that you faced as a result of this. You talk in the book about... Andrew Neil <laughs> bringing up your wealth yes. on this week. And that seems to be another aspect that people yes. have had a real problem with. Why <laughs> do you think it's offended people so much? And how do you think that would have been framed differently if you'd been a man in this position? Uh, the wealth issue is something that in the UK we have an issue with. You know, in, in the US, everyone has the ability to work hard, enjoy their wealth and show it off and give it away. And, you know, it, it's an acceptable conversation to have in society. Whereas in the UK, we've never felt that comfortable talking about money. And is there's always this underlying thing that if you've got money, you've got it either illegally or you've just not inherited it. There's always, um, you know, a, a sort of a strings attached to money. My view, and I say to people, so is the message you're trying to tell young people, because the messages we give young people are really important, that don't work hard, don't be successful, because if you have money, then we'll hate you. Because if that's a message you want to give out, then carry on attacking me. But actually, it's what you do with your money. 
First of all, it's how you've earned it and what you do with it. Because with success and money comes responsibility. And what I've done is I have the privilege of being able to use it to fight for causes I believe in. And that's a very different, I think, from the usual criticism of wealth. But there's also tinged with that whole wealth and, and success and all of it is this idea that, which I've been told over and over again, so what's your hidden agenda? They, you must be up to something. You can't be doing this for no reason. Nobody does anything, the right, you know, the right thing for no reason. Are you secretly trying to take over the country? Exactly. Am I secretly trying to take over the country? And not only that, am I now behind using my money to influence, I never knew how powerful I am. I'm now influencing so many things and so many people. It's quite extraordinary. But it's that idea that there must be a string attached. And I think that's really sad, a reflection that people can't see other people doing things for the right reasons. And at all levels, not just for money, but your question about man is really interesting because men are supposed to be rich and successful and earn money. How did you get there? You must have either slept your way up, pulled strings, married a husband, whatever it is. I mean, the, the fact that people find really difficult with, with all the work and everything I do is when they say, oh, you know, we'll, and they paint my husband, you know, whatever. And I go, no, no, it's my money. He doesn't contribute to any of my campaigning. This is my money. And that's a concept that's so hard to understand. How could you possibly... But this is something that's ingrained in society, I think. We have real... You know, Mary Baird, who I absolutely adore puts this very well in her book when she talks about these are, these are secret signals that are in our society and have been there for a very long time to diminish women. I'd actually just be interested to know what is the most ridiculous thing you've been accused of influencing? Yeah. <laughs> it, was something, it was something to do with Meghan and Will's wedding the other day about who was wow. there or the... Or the, the the chap who made his speech, whatever. So there was some sort of accusation about the royal wedding, which I found so unbelievably bizarre. Yeah. The fact that I can persuade all these men with really a huge amounts of money to give me, you know, to give their money to me, like George Soros has never given me a penny, you know, and I have very good reasons why I wouldn't accept it too, in that I think if I'm fighting for British cause, I should be using money from some British yeah. people. But it, I must be a magician that I could do this. Oh, oh there was one this morning which was quite extraordinary on social media, is that I'm not British, uh, I don't live here, and I don't pay any taxes here. I live in France, which I thought, so I must be a magician because I can be in two places at the same time. I can actually live, work, and have a family in two countries at exactly the same time. I thought that really is quite extraordinary. Just to be clear, <laughs> we are recording this in, in London. London. <laughs> yes. yeah. But it is just it's some, it, things like that, and you just think, what? Yeah. <laughs> oh, no. But the, thing, the weird thing is... We're now, I mean, you, you mentioned Soros. Now we're in a situation where people say stuff. And, and then everyone believes it. And then it. everybody believes it. And it's, it's, some of it is, I mean, some of the stuff that's said about Soros, it's, it's full on just... It's just lies. Beyond belief. Just but the, it becomes like urban, what, what used to exist in the world as like urban myth, suddenly mm, thanks mm. to things like Twitter. At two weeks down the line, that's suddenly being reported as fact. I run a, a loss-making business, okay? So we've been going nine years... And we reinvest all our earnings to try and build a better, you know, a, a better business. And I thought, do you know how many businesses, international businesses have loss making because of, you know, that's not something that's uh, negative. That means you're actually building something yeah. and you're expanding on it. And you just think, really, is that all you've got? Often I think that that's my reaction. I was like, is that all you've got? 
you know, come on, bring it on. I'd love to know what it is you think you can really dent me with. You know, in the book, you detail the most horrific abuse, which you sort of touched on already. And you said that you had to steal yourself to open the mail in the morning. What kind of impact does that have on you, cumulatively? I didn't expect the violence, the sheer aggression that was shown towards me and my children. And to this day, I will never forget opening the letter, which had in the first line, we know where you live, your children will be killed in front of you, and then we'll burn you alive. I mean, that I will never forget, because I then went into the kitchen to have breakfast with my children, and I looked at them and I thought, does this person really know where I live? Because it was actually sent to my office, and I thought, I wonder if they really do know where I live. So that was the first thought in my mind. And I spoke to my uh, police team and they said, look, Gino, we've got the kids. We'll, we'll sort it out just in case it is a threat. And then what goes through my mind is, what if I'm not here? Who will look after my children? And uh, I mean, that's a really desperate place to be in. And then the next thought that then went through my mind is, oh, I'll start writing letters to them in case something happens to me. And then the, that was sort of during the middle of the week. And then on the weekend, I thought, what are you doing? Just stop it. I can't be like that. I have to live a nor- try and live a normal life. But it's very difficult to know how to live that normal life. And so what we've done is we've taken precautions. So our life has changed. And it's the saddest thing I miss is being able to just go out with my children. Because I can do that when I'm on holiday or outside the UK. I don't feel I can do that in the same way in the UK. It's difficult with those things because obviously there's an element of the sort of person that says that is just some angry, drunk, whatever person, mm. maybe. maybe. But it only takes one, you see. But then also look at Joe Cox. and then Well, those, think- I got a lot of those. You'll, Joe Cox's death is too good for you. You know, you'll be the next Joe Cox, all that sort of so thing. So why not take barrage. it seriously? So, so I do take it seriously because it only takes... But also... I think it's really important to understand that online is interesting because to be a armchair warrior, if you like, positive or negative, I don't take it seriously, which sounds odd, as somebody who is, takes the time and the effort to write, to, write yeah. to put a stamp on, to take it to the postbox. Yeah. That's premeditated as far yeah. as I'm concerned. That's more dangerous to me Absolutely. than somebody who's online. So offline I find more intimidating than online. Yeah, I mean, a, a slightly different thing. I used to work for a newspaper for years, and you could tell the quality of letter to the editor when the internet came along, that, that there were things that when someone had to sit and write a letter to the editor, it was generally a well-thought-out piece that they'd sit down and written. And then you could see the, the things that people were emailing in that they'd written when they were oh, drunk yes. at 11 yes. o'clock and they were angry. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so definitely, like, you have meditated on that. You've gone and bought a stamp. You've walked to the post yes. box. So, yeah, that is completely... Oh, that's terrifying. Mm. What's really odd is some letters, very threatening letters, have been sent to the government. Have been, so it says, Gina Miller, traitor, care of, you know, Westminster or whatever. And they <laughs> yeah. dutifully, the civil <laughs> yeah. servants there, dutifully put it in an envelope and then send them to me. Yeah. And I'm going, really? <laughs> yeah. Because that's, it's really, really quite odd. Yeah, also, <laughs> that's sort of the point, isn't it? That you're, you're not working for the government. I know, I know. It's all, all very odd. But now Gina's pulling all the strings. Yeah, I'm we pulling all the strings. Yeah, exactly. But, but I think there is definitely a difference in the threats that come to women and men. And I now know this from speaking to... I mean, I always knew it for women in business. But now on the, I, I am so sad and sorry for women in public life because... When they say to me, and I, I learned very early on when I was sharing my experiences with them, they were going, yes, this is normal, Gina, this is what we get. And I'm thinking, when did this become normal? 
And they say, oh, and then they have this dilemma because I've asked several MPs, so why have you not spoken out about this before, way before Brexit? And they said, because we would seem to be being weak, you know, we fought hard to be here. And so they've had this dilemma of being, of, of, you know, how would it be received if they spoke out? And I think that's a real shame. Well, you can understand it, can't you? I was talking to someone the other day about the Theresa May thing, you know, the, the Lexit front page of the Daily Mail <laughs> and how she basically just threw women under the bus by going, oh, it's just a bit of a laugh, isn't it? Because she looks like the kind of person who laughs a lot. <laughs> but, um, but you can see why she did it, because if she'd made a fuss about it, it would have given, you know, ammunition to people to say, well, you know, woman making a fuss about whatever. You can understand why she was advised to do that. Yeah, I, I can. And also, I think sometimes you have got to ignore some of it and get on. But I think we've reached a stage now where we fought really hard. I mean, it's not it's definitely not like when I went into work or business or anything in the 90s. You know, things have moved on. What I'm really worried about is that we're, we're pedaling backwards instead of forwards. Those who are on the extremes have now moved to the center and now more of mainstream conversations. We're not treating them as people we should ignore or extremists anymore. The dialogue, the quality of dialogue has changed. And in the name, you know, the defense is free speech, but actually it's not the medium. It's not where it is online, offline, in a magazine, you know, graffitied on a wall is, is this inciting hatred, sexual, racial violence? If you stick to those rules, you are much clearer at what you're judging. And I think we get lost in this conversation about, oh, well, it's online. It's this, uh, people don't mean it. It's not the medium. It's the message. Mm. And if we can get back to that and say, and the other things you say, would you say this to someone face to face? Then that actually changes things and checks people. Mm. Um, so we, we make we make up excuses and we, we sort of put a language around things that are actually quite simple. And if maybe get back to being quite simple about what we call out, then we can rejig some of this. Given all of the abuse and all of the crazy stuff that's been going on, did you ever feel like you could actually? just walk away from this. So. so the way the case happened was, because a lot of people don't appreciate this, that I was actually one of four cases that went to what's called an administrative hearing in the July after the referendum, July 2016. And it was the judge, Lord Levinson, who made me the lead claimant. I didn't make myself the front of this. The courts appointed me for lead, to be lead claimant, I think for two main reasons. One is, our case that we put together, we were so careful not to be political. It was a black and white letter of the law. We made no political statements in our case. And secondly, I'd managed to bag one of the most you know, brilliant uh, QCs in the country to fight what was going to be a very sensitive case in a very febrile environment. So I think those are the two reasons that I was made lead claimant. So I, I didn't make myself, but over that summer, because a court hearing was going to be made, um, heard in the October when the whole deluge of abuse started, and I now know that um, some of the right-wing press thought that if they destroyed me and made it so difficult for me, I would have dropped the case, there wouldn't have been a case. So if they could have destroyed me over that summer, I wouldn't have brought, you know, there wouldn't be a case. That summer, I did think about it because I, it was so, so personal. All sorts of, you know, they, journalists sent people to my father's village in South America to try and find any dirt on our family. They went to extraordinary lengths to find lots and lots of skeletons in my closets. I always say thank you very much because that summer you saved me a lot of money. I didn't have to pay a private detective. <laughs> you actually cleaned my closet for me and I've realized there aren't as many skeletons, so thank you very much. Um, <laughs> but uh, I did think about it because I thought about the children and the impact on them and the impact on my family, impact on my business, impact on my foundation and all the beneficiaries of my work. 
And anyone I realize, anybody associated with me would also be a target and be in a very difficult position. So I did think about it collectively. And then I sort of had a chat with my husband and he said to me one day, he said, okay, so you drop it. And what will you feel afterwards if this case is never brought? And I said, I'd never forgive myself. And he said, well, you've got the answer then. And that's why I carried on. Gina's book, Rise, Life Lessons in Speaking Out, Standing Tall and Leading the Way is out on the 30th of August, yes, I believe. Yes, 30th of August. Yeah, and that's going to be available, I assume, in all good bookshops. <laughs> I hope so. Yeah, absolutely. It's a labour of love, so I hope so. <laughs> and where can we find you on social media to be nice to you? <laughs> Everyone laughs when I say it, but it's at that Gina Miller. <laughs> <laughs> Gina, thank you so much. My pleasure. <laughs> Standard issue for all women.